You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rissman, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, and marketing. In this episode, I'm joined by Hunter Walk. Hunter's a co-founder and partner at the seed venture capital firm Homebrew, but he's perhaps best known for his near decade at Google, the latter half of which he spent as the director of product management for YouTube. It's a role he took on just after YouTube's acquisition, and among other things, he scaled the platform 40x and grew his team from three to more than 30. Hunter's a must-follow for entrepreneurs on Twitter. You can find him at HunterWalk, and he's regularly blogging about startups at HunterWalk.com. In our talk, Hunter shares his thoughts on what skills make for a successful product manager. I think you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of others and understand their points of view. doesn't mean you have to be consensus-driven. In fact, I think being consensus-driven is sort of death from a product management standpoint. Why companies must prioritize harder challenges over easy, low-effort improvements. As a leader, I think if you're not helping your organization understand why a big transformative bet is important, then your growth curve is likely flattening in some way. And how he identifies his seed investments at Homebrew. Any entrepreneur can come up with a slide that says, "Where this is a $7 trillion market. But what we really want to know is, what problem are you trying to solve? And is that problem to your potential customer, your user, large, urgent, and valuable? So without further ado, let's hop into our interview with Hunter Walk. Hunter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. For the sake of any listeners who aren't as familiar with your work, not reading your blog, or not one of your near-infinite Twitter followers at this point, can you give us a feel for your career trajectory and really what drew you from working on product specifically into the world of venture capital? Yeah, absolutely. So we're about three and a half years into homebrew. So before that, spent a lot of my time on the product side. It was actually the place where I found that sort of left brain and right brain kind of worked together mm-hmm. uh, and uh, spent uh, years at Second Life uh, and then nine years at Google divided between AdSense and YouTube. The connective tissue between sort of Second Life, AdSense, and YouTube was really technology as a tool of creation, creation within a community and audience, um, and then importantly with an economic model that would allow creators to see dollars from their creations, uh, not just likes and hearts. Right, right. right. And YouTube specifically, uh, during a large portion of that time, post-Google acquisition, I think 2007, about 2011, you were the director of product management. And over that time, I mean, the platform grew astronomically. That goes without saying. I think the number that's been thrown around is 40x or so. What were the biggest challenges you were facing in that phase? I mean, was it keeping the site up? Was it legality concerns, profitability? I'm sure all that to some degree. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. It was a really interesting time. So I came over from Google right after the acquisition. And, you know, although it's kind of funny to think about now, the acquisition wasn't necessarily embraced by the tech community in the sense that everyone thought Google overpaid. This was a site that was just about dogs riding skateboards, how it was ever going to make money. Was it legal? Was it just a fad? And so um, it was about 65 people. Google let us operate separately, uh, still headquartered in San Bruno, so not even on the main Google campus. And from a product standpoint, I really felt like I was lucky enough to inherit something that was burning hot. But how could we turn sort of phosphorus into a furnace? How could we make sure that it burned forever? And there were three main things that sort of set out to accomplish during my time there. The first was, you know, taking it from phenomena to 
ongoing consumer product? Can we make sure that it grows with our users, grows across platforms? Uh, can it make any money? Eventually, you're going to have to figure out how to not just pay Google, but more importantly, pay the creators who are putting video on the site. And then, yeah, there were some uh, lawsuits at the time. There were people who were attempting to say that YouTube was benefiting uh, improperly from copyrighted works, things like that. And so we, we always wanted to work very closely with rights owners. And so started from early on, how do we build the tools to make fan uploads productive as opposed to destructive? Right, right. So simultaneously with juggling all these product concerns, you also had to grow the product team itself at a pretty fast and quick rate from three to more than 30. Um, Obviously, you're pretty familiar with defining success in a product management role. A lot of our listeners are from small early stage companies and are just now starting to look to hire and grow in this space. What traits do you often see for those that are going to excel in product management? I think regardless of the nature of product management and the nature of the product, because that can differ from company to company. You need uh, three, maybe four qualities. Uh, One, I'd say, is curiosity. You have to always be asking questions, always wanting to learn. Uh, To be a good communicator. Uh, You're going to be talking not just to engineers and designers, but cross-functionally across the entire company. Uh, Often an external-facing champion of your your product as well. So I think you need to be able to uh, clearly communicate. I think you need to be working in service of something greater than you. I think product management is about service leadership. It's about realizing that you're there for a period of time to take a product from one stage to another. Um, and while people sometimes say like, oh, you're the CEO you know, of the product uh, without being sort of the CEO of the company, I think that's fine. So long as you realize that what you're doing is trying to make something stronger to then potentially hand off to the next set of leaders to take it beyond your time. And then I think you also have to have empathy and customer focus, you have to be able to, even if you're not the customer yourself, I think you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of others and understand their points of view. Doesn't mean you have to be consensus driven. In fact, I think being consensus driven is sort of death from a product management standpoint, but you do have to understand other points of view, even if you don't always you know, agree or act upon them. Speaking of not acting upon them, I mean, you're getting feature requests from all sorts of different avenues in that regard too. And I think you have to have some sort of backbone really be able to say no to most of those, right? Because you are honing that that voice of the customer. Absolutely. I think you run a collaborative process, especially internally. People need to feel like they have the opportunity to, to comment, to criticize, to provide their suggestions. But at the end of the day, whether it's you, one of the product managers in your group, or somebody else within the company, you need to have clear decision makers. And when the sort of comment period is done, you have to trust those people to make the right decisions. So you're a product manager from a, a non-technical background. You weren't in engineering. And I'm curious for PMs that are, have had a similar path to you who may not have all the, the answers and shouldn't pretend like they have them when it comes to infrastructure work and other technical challenges, um, how can they go about prioritizing and, and who should they lead on for those things? So I'm going to give an answer, but I'll first caveat by saying, man, there were plenty of times in my career where I felt like an imposter because especially at Google, like to the right and to the left of you is you know, a product manager with a technical background. And they keep talking about how those are the product managers they want to hire, except I noticed that uh, at least back you know, in the early days, 
most of the product VPs didn't have technical backgrounds. And so I had plenty of role models within the company that could prove that you didn't need a technical background, despite the fact that uh, I was being told, you know, that every 23-year-old with a uh, human-computer interaction degree from, from Stanford was sort of a better PM than I was going to be. Um, I think you touched on a little bit inherently into the question, which is uh, there are certain types of projects that require certain backgrounds. Uh, if you're uh, a PM who uh, lacks sort of, you know, deep technical knowledge, you know, there's some infrastructure stuff that probably doesn't make sense. But I would kind of say almost everything else, you know, does. And it's the sense that uh, you need to be technically curious and technically confident, if not necessarily technically trained. It means developing uh, great rapport with uh, your engineering counterparts. It means trust. It means understanding what questions to ask to get the data you need or to help people think through making the right decision. But ultimately, you're trusting them. I remember it's, um, I worked for Susan uh, Wojcicki, um, who was one of, you know, Google sort of famously sort of founded in her garage, and now she's the CEO of YouTube. And I, you know, when she brought me into her product org, I sort of leaned over and I was like, well, I'm kind of nervous. I don't have a, you know, CS degree. And she said, you know, she sort of said, Hunter, we have lots of really great engineers. If you had to make technical decisions, like Google would be in a lot of trouble. It would mean that, our, you know, we were hiring bad engineers. And that sort of gave me, you know, a framework which, to think about this, which was, you know, my job is to help our really great engineers and our really great engineering leaders, um, you know, aim their talents in the right direction. Uh, and so I relied upon, you know, sort of my ability to help create that direction, my ability to make sure that direction stayed on track, and my ability to help those people feel great and proud about the work they were doing. And I don't think any of that requires a technical degree. It's not, I'm not clear that any of that even requires a college degree, um, although I'll you know, push for the liberal arts since I was a history major. At Intercom, we talk a lot about how customer support and product need to be in close contact to truly solve user problems. I'm curious, how did your product team work across disciplines at YouTube or Second Life, and how crucial was that to your success? Uh, incredibly important. Uh, at I think every company I've been at, you know, at YouTube, you had a, a very, very large and a very, very vocal community. And there were things that they often did help with. Sometimes that was purely technical help. Sometimes that was enforcing community standards. Very often it was, you know, as we rolled out new types of features, rolled out to new countries, it was an education for us also. And so the only way that we were able to let information flow from the company to our users and from our users back to our company, I think was thinking about support as a bi-directional channel and not just as an FAQ or a cost center. And so we embraced um, having a product manager who worked closely with that team, um, figuring out what KPIs we wanted to measure for support that weren't just about triage and dismissing, but were about um, are we, you know, do we have a high NPS in our uh, interactions with our users? Are we gaining information and insights from our support channel just like we would from user research or market research? So we looked at all of those interactions as opportunities to learn rather than uh, potential issues to just smother. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Don't send visitors down a dead end. Let them ask questions when and where they have them in real time. See how at intercom.com slash acquire. 
I'm Adam Risman, and we're here in the studio with Hunter Walk, co-founder and partner at Homebrew. Hunter, despite all the success that you had scaling YouTube the product, scaling your product management team, one thing that I found very interesting is that you've said that you weren't necessarily the best product leader. And I'm curious, because on paper, it looks like you were outstanding, but is that a result of just the politics involved with management and being a step removed from the creative decision-making, working under the hood, or did you just feel like you didn't have the biggest impact there? Yeah, I don't think it had to do so much with impact. I'm very proud of the sort of accomplishments occurred while I was there. I credit, you know, a, an amazing cross-functional team um, that I had the chance to work with. But I do think that there were two distinct periods of YouTube's development that I had the chance to play a role in. And in the first half, I would give myself, you know, sort of very high marks. It was growing the initial team. It was working under the guidance of Chad Hurley, the CEO and one of the founders. And it was YouTube truly as a separate entity. Uh, that was when we, you know, did a deal with Apple to get YouTube as uh, the only third-party app on the initial iPhone. We papered, you know, agreements with Twitter and Facebook. We were really um, externally focused and meeting our users where they were and thinking about how can we move quickly, how can we be innovative, and how can we take risks. We reached a point in size where all of a sudden we became strategically important to Google. Uh, we had a change in leadership. We had a great letter from Google come over as uh, Chad moved into more of sort of an emeritus role. And a lot of the discussion at that point I think became about where does YouTube fit into the Google portfolio? And also we reached a scale just in headcount where as a product leader, I felt like my job needed to switch towards uh, people management and clearing roadblocks for them as opposed to being on a whiteboard or helping them think through product design decisions. And those were the areas where I found myself to be less satisfied and maybe not living up to the expectations that I had set for myself. Uh, so some of that you can call sort of politics and so on and so forth, but I don't want to be pejorative. Like those are important right. skills for product management leaders to have. And uh, the folks who's, you know, my successor uh, is great at all of those things and exactly the right leader for pulling YouTube into that next phase and continue to increase YouTube's uh, reach and profit and everything by, you know, another order of magnitude. So, I, you know, I went in strong. I'm proud of what we accomplished, but I also realized towards the end that it was possible to sort of get pulled into a role that didn't necessarily suit me. Um, and that's, I think, where it comes back to that sort of service mentality. Am I working in service of myself or am I working in service of the product, the company, and the team? And if it's the latter, which is what I think it should be, then all of a sudden you start to realize that you're not, you're not exactly what they need at that time. It took me a little while to realize that. I wouldn't say I realized it by myself 100%, but in retrospect, you know, sort of stepping away and leaving was the right decision. So, so in retrospect, are there different opportunities or pathways that you, you see now where you feel startups should provide those, those types of things to people in product management so they don't feel like they're limited towards a path in people management? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to team size and organization size. If you're going to go through a classic you know, cross-functional or hierarchical structure, there's almost no way to avoid the triangle of people management if you're going to just continue to grow headcount. Um, you can take a different approach, which, you know, sort of Google has taken in some ways now with Alphabet, which is saying, okay, projects may have different team sizes and those teams may need to exist separate from this large, mature company, large, mature product called Google. But um, I think it really comes down to a mentality of how big are you going to let yourself get? And I just don't think you can navigate uh, the infrastructure challenges if you're going to also be big. So, you know, what is it like mitosis, you know, cell splitting? If you really want to sort of, you know, optimize for 
Uh, speed, I think you have to figure out how to give people, uh, fi- let teams find their natural size and give them autonomy. So regardless of team size, at any technology company, startup or large, one of the biggest challenges that I often hear about is prioritization. Uh, recently, you had a chat with our senior director of growth, Ben McRedmond, about prioritizing work in a way that creates impactful change. You've got this this axis you described to him that we recently put up on our blog that I love where you've got effort from low to high across the x-axis, vertically across the y, you've, you've got impact. And you know, when it comes to high effort, low impact work, most everybody's pretty good about avoiding that. Right. I'm taking um, a finger right now and sort of drawing the chart <laughs> in the air so I can remember. I'm trying to describe this as well as I can audibly. Um, when it comes to high impact, low effort work, so in this, this axis we're talking about the uh, upper left, there's really not much there once you're a mature company. And then at the bottom left, you've got this low effort, low impact work. And you've called that snacking and something that startups should stay away from. When I think of snacking, I think of copycat features, that low-hanging fruit, maybe changing a button color or small language tweaks in UI. Why do startups feel pulled towards this and what's the risk there? Sure. You know, as an individual atomic unit, like any one of those changes is valuable, right? So it's not that the reward's not there. In fact, the point is they actually each have a positive benefit, but they're all small. They're all local optimizations. They all avoid sometimes the big bet you should be making, the more complex question you should be asking yourself about are we growing more relevant or less relevant as a product for our users? Is the world around us changing and do we need to be aggressive in changing with it or leading our customers, leading our users to a new reality? And so uh, a little snack here and there never hurt anybody, but trying to sort of uh, do nothing but uh, eat potato chips all day will you know, eventually leave you dead. I think companies of all sizes fall into these for a variety of reasons. Um, and uh, each of the reasons sort of has a you know, sort of you know, different core problem behind it. Uh, one is uh, if you have a reward and recognition system that celebrates volume, number of features shipped, uh, productivity seems to equal sort of, you know, rate of code check-ins or things like that, then you sort of slowly drift towards, well, what are all the things that we can get done? Um, To to hit the quota. Yeah, to hit the quota. Uh, If you have an organization that uh, doesn't want to take risks or where failure to deliver results, uh, even though maybe it was a smart calculated bet, is punished right away as opposed to examined and improved, well, then, of course, if given the choice between something that you know is going to have a minor improvement and something that is you know, going to take a longer time to prove whether or not it works, uh, the gravitational pull will be towards those small things. In fact, a lot of uh, wonderful software tools, the sort of multivariate testing frameworks, all that, are often geared towards finding the, the, the beautiful snacks, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, we got to change this, we got to change this, we got to change this. The one that I think is most insidious and also sometimes the hardest to fix is if you have lots of talented people who are doing nothing but snacking, doing nothing but sort of items three through 20 on their to-do list as opposed to items one and two, um, it can sometimes be an indication of dysfunction as opposed to uh, highly functional. And that's to say there's a decision that's not being made. There's groups that don't want to collaborate. There's people who just get frustrated, the designer or the engineer who doesn't want to sit in another meeting to debate you know, the outcome of a big effort. And so let me just go back to my desk and get stuff done. Uh, so as a leader, I think if, you, you know, if you're not helping your organization understand why you know, a big transformative bet is important and always kind of working on one of those, preparing to work on one of those, or coming out of working on one of those, then 
your growth curve is likely flattening in some way, or at least you are losing the chance to pull ahead of the competition, to pull your users into the future. The graph may not show it yet, but you sort of wake up each day and you haven't made progress towards you know, reinventing yourself. It's part of that, the lure of, of chasing the competition rather than trying to make that high strategy big bet? It can be. You know, it's very hard if, you know, in these businesses, if you miss a platform shift, it can be very hard to catch up. And so as a leader, sort of trying to make the decision of whether we should catch up or whether we should try to leapfrog is a really tough one. But I tell you, you know, if you go into any company, uh, you talk to folks, again, sometimes the metrics don't show it, but you sort of can ask, do you think we're becoming more relevant or less relevant to our customers, more relevant, less relevant to our users every day? I get some really interesting answers. You can also tell when sometimes when people are trying to sort of like change the KPIs on you. I think changing the KPIs can be one of the most effective ways to actually make a phase change, to burn the ships. But you can also tell, if you ask what the motivation was, it's sort of the classic MySpace example. I remember when MySpace shifted from focus on US user base to global user base. And it was because growth was sort of stopping in the U.S. user base, but you had all these other countries where growth was going wonderful. And so you want to find the next chart that shows you're up and to the right. 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 What you really should have been saying is, oh, no, what's going on here in the U.S.? Why, why is this flattening? Why is this flattening? Is that indicative of what's going to happen in other markets right. once we reach maturity or once Facebook rolls out you know, in those geographies? Once you grab these new users and then they just start fading away like the last Yeah, time. so my, you know, that was, you know, when I was talking about sort of the change that happened at YouTube after I left, I thought one of the most brilliant things uh, successor uh, Shir Marocha did was the, there had been a lethargy setting in around view counts. A, it was no longer may, maybe the best way to understand user engagement. And second, you know, there was a big party when we hit a billion, you know, view counts. Then it sort of became trying to get people excited about hitting 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion. It was numbing. There was no galvanizing... Uh, user-facing stat, people were excited about making more money, but no galvanizing user-facing stat. Um, and, you know, he really led this organization-wide change to move from view count to amount of video viewed per day. So it all of a sudden became about longer sessions, not more view count. It became about how do we get from 15 minutes a day to 30 minutes, 60 minutes a day. And that required a lot of leap of faith. It required a lot of rethinking about our analytical frameworks. Um, but ultimately, it reframed what a happy, successful user looked like in a way that I think, you know, um, ensured that the YouTube of mobile, the YouTube of the living room, you know, the YouTube of today is YouTube right. and not a successive property. Yeah, it's significantly more impactful than it makes, it makes views seem like a vanity metric. Exactly, exactly. And like, I don't, that's an example of a, you know, if I had stayed on, I don't know if I would have been able to make that change. I had my, I had my mindset, you know, I, I had sort of, grown up in this view count environment. I inherited the product when it was at a hundred million views and I had taken it to, you know, uh, four or four and a half billion. Like I wanted to get to 10 billion, but that wasn't the right metric for that product anymore. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership, all about the extraordinary AI driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out, 
some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. I'm Adam Rissman, and we're here in the studio with Hunter Walk, co-founder and partner at Homebrew. So speaking of moving on, you're now at essentially what is a, a startup, funding startups in a lot of ways. Yes, a startup um, that writes checks instead of code, I sometimes joke. Exactly. Yeah. Homebrew, your, uh, your VC firm, and you're focused on the seed stage. I'm curious, what was it about that stage specifically that you were excited about or in favor of rather than something more advanced like a Series A? Is it the ability to roll up your sleeves and be able to collaborate with those folks or kind of hearkening back to your product days? Yeah, I think the you know what's important to note is sort of the the genesis of Homebrew. And it started out because my partner Sacha and I wanted to work together again. We'd spent a few years working at Google. And his background is a mix of product leadership roles and venture. Um, he had led product at Twitter um, prior to us starting Homebrew. And so venture and specifically seed stage wasn't where we started. We, in fact, we didn't start with an idea of what we would do together. We started by talking about what would it mean to work together again? And we use that to then narrow down what would we enjoy doing together? Where do we think we could add something to the community? You know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you can, you know, was raising, the fun, was raising a fund the hardest part of becoming a VC? And like in some ways, that was a prerequisite. But I think deciding why we wanted to be VCs was more important than just the ability of can you go raise a fund? And so as you mentioned, we were really focused on how do we want to spend our days? Uh, what sort of a relationship do we want to have with founders? And how do we want to make our money? Like what does success look like by the metrics um, from our investors? And when we asked ourselves those questions, as opposed to uh, how much can we raise? Okay, that'll be the fund we are, or uh, what's the most near-term economically advantaged uh, strategy for us to take, which is certainly not being a seed fund, uh, came down to waking up every morning. Do we want to create value for ourselves on the term sheets? Do we want to be thinking about you know, an 80-page document, uh, all these different conditions for what could or might happen? Uh, do we want to make our money with an Excel model, plugging in data, and trying to figure out if this company is going to IPO in a year or not? And the answer to all those things is, of course, no. What we want to be good at is identifying founders who have a strong vision for what the future should look like, um, a future that we believe in, a future that we think is solving a problem that's large, urgent, and valuable, and then somebody who can put sweat and reputation behind every day. So like, you make an investment decision, then you still have to get up with that team every day. Um, so that's why we focus on Seed, because you know, as I talked a little bit about my experience with YouTube and some of the other companies I worked at, I found that the first few years of a company's existence was the time that I had the most fun. And while we're clearly we're not on the org chart, we don't think of ourselves as player coaches, we're investors, 
being an investor at the seed stage does have a slightly different playbook than being an investor at the A stage, B stage, C stage. And so we picked you know, the segment uh, company where we felt like our values were most aligned with founders and that the uh, way we wanted to spend our time was well connected to how we would create value, which was get these companies, help them get further along, get to the A round, get to the B round. One thing I've seen you and Sasha throw around frequently when you talk about the way that you work with the companies you're invested in is you describe yourselves as partners in conviction. What does that mean in practice on a, on a day-to-day basis? How are you? Yeah, boy, in the last few years, convictions become like another buzzword. So exactly. I, might have to, I might have to discard it. Um, you know, when we started out, it was really this question about what would it mean to be the type of investor we would have wanted to take money from? And sometimes investors get this knock, which is, well, you don't care about any one company because, you know, you're invested in 10, 20, 30, 40 companies. Like, no one matters that much to you. Of course, when, it, when one company's doing great, you want to get out there and tweet about it and sort of, you know, run to the head of the parade. But, you know, you'll never care about any one company. And while as investors, uh, it would be foolish or at least a different type of model to invest in, you know, only one company per fund, we wanted to concentrate our time and concentrate our dollars. So we make about eight to 10 investments a year, and we're playing usually sort of a leadership role in that seed fundraise. We're writing the largest check into the round. And so for us, conviction is about two things. It's about how we spend our time. I've been about 40 to 50% of our time with the current investments. We get up each day and think about them. And we go in asking ourselves the question, not just, oh, do we think this is a good investment, but do we want to put sweat and reputation behind this team's vision of what the future should look like. Because if we can't say that, it's not their problem, it's our problem. The founders are certainly getting up every day and putting 100% of their sweat and reputation behind their vision of the future and how they want to get there. And so for us, it's that last gut check. It's that gut check that says, if we can't go into this with that same conviction, then founders deserve better investors. They deserve investors who have that conviction because, you know, during these earliest days, you're pushing a boulder up a hill. And it, you know, it does no good if you have investors who are sitting on that boulder or even worse, pushing you know, from the other side. Like, we've got to get our hands on that boulder you know, with the founders, with their team. And so for that, that's what it means to us. So we have a lot of listeners that are indeed pushing that boulder. And I'm curious, if a founder is looking to raise seed funding from you or Homebrew, You've hinted at this a little bit, but what are you really evaluating at this stage? I mean, I know in Series A, there's a lot of momentum is something that's looked at quite heavily. In, in Series B, it's definitely metrics. Right. What are you looking more at? Is it the problem that's being solved? Is it the drive of the founder, product quality, or market potential? What's Walk me through your evaluation yeah. process a little bit. Well, I'd say that there's, you know, every company is a snowflake. So at the end of the day, based upon what vertical they're in, what they think their business is, you know, there's certain different things that when you really get down to it, you want to understand. But what is universal for us, sort of two simple things. Do we think the company is building, you know, a product or service that solves a problem that is large, urgent, and valuable? And this is, you know, we tend not to do a lot of like, for example, like consumer social and stuff. So the large, urgent, valuable problem like works Generally, it doesn't work for every type of, of business. But we say large, urgent, and valuable. And for us, problem size is our proxy for market size because you know any entrepreneur can come up with a slide that says, We're, this is a $7 trillion market. But what we really want to know is what problem are you trying to solve? 
And is that problem to your potential customer, your user, large, urgent, and valuable? Large, is it, is it big? Are there a lot of people who are impacted by this? Urgent, uh, if you provide them a better product, a better service, are they going to want to purchase it? Does it switch. matter to them right now? And valuable, can you capture a percentage of the value um, that you're creating for them? If you, have one of, if you only have one of the three, I'm not sure you have any type of business. If you have two of the three, I think you can still build a very successful business. It's unclear to me whether it can be a, a, a venture-scale business, which isn't pejorative, right? Like, I think venture is a, only one particular type of financing, and it's actually not a great type of financing for a lot of very successful businesses. Uh, if you have all three, then all of a sudden you start to see, well, now I know why they need to raise money to spend money ahead of revenue, to spend money to push growth, to spend money to hire a team before they know whether or not everything is going to work, as opposed to incrementally growing. Uh, and it comes down to, does this founding team have not just the aptitude, but the attitude to want to solve this problem fully? Because that, and you're, you're talking about it, most of these large, urgent, and valuable problems are going to take 10 years to solve. So even though a seed round might be 12 months, 18 months, 24 months of capital, and you're trying to find product market fit, you're trying to you know, figure out what do I need to prove to that next round of investors, you should be going into raising your seed round, assuming that you're going to be working on this problem for 10 years if successful. And if that scares you, step back. Step back before you raise capital because you're getting onto a path that really means the best case scenario is you're going to be working very long and very hard on this problem with these people and when I say with these people, not just your founders and your team, but the investors you're bringing on board. There's a lot of momentum behind product-first companies. It's very celebrated these days. You said that if your first product is indeed your company, then building the actual company itself should be a top priority. Do you frequently see early-stage founders stuck in um, this sort of sprint mindset? Um, or what foundational areas are necessary to shift toward a more company level outlook. Yeah. Well, I think it's being, I think the first part to reference back to what we just talked about was the time horizon with which you start to see this company existing. If you start out believing this company is going to exist for a long time, you have a very different point of view. We're investors in a company called um, Honor, uh, the CEO, Seth Sternberg, who previously had a very successful outcome building a product called Mebo that he sold to Google. But when he started Honor, that's in the um, home healthcare space, he started thinking of it as minimally a 20-year company. And combining sort of a sense of urgency with an endurance, knowing how long it would take to truly change his industry. Uh, they just raised a, a $42 million B round. So he's, you know, he also knows it's going to take a lot of capital to right. do it. But he's strapped in for, you know, in his mind, a very, very long period of time. Uh, the things that I urge founders to think about when they think about their company is to be intentional about the choices they make and to realize that just like your product isn't going to be five separate teams all working on features without talking to anybody else and then trying to ship those features and say, oh, now we have a product. Like, There's very little chance that that would work, let alone whole being greater than some of its parts. And so as you're thinking about your company, you're thinking about your culture, you're thinking about your hiring practices, you're thinking about uh, your fundraising velocity, you're thinking about uh, your org structure. Sometimes people are tempted to think of those as disconnected decisions, but they're all connected. And so, for example, one of the ways we make that very tangible for founders post-funding, as opposed to sitting down and saying, okay, let's do, a, let's do a week to talk about your culture, we have a very simple conversation, which is, great, 
you've raised money. That money is almost always immediately going to hire people. Uh, beside, you know, you've written up some specs of the people you want to hire, uh, the roles. You know, besides the skills you'd like them to have, are there other attributes or characteristics, you know, you'd like them to display? And then, you know, answer is yes or no. If the answer is yes, then you sort of have a, a list of, you know, attributes. Then you say, well, do you know what questions you're going to ask in order to figure out whether somebody has these attributes or not? And then that leads to another discussion. And then you ask, if somebody is incredibly skilled but doesn't have these attributes, would you hire them? And the answer, if the answer is yes, well, then you, 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 know, you have sort of a, a culture that's going to be a patchwork. If the answer is no, these are the values that we want our company to embody, you have a culture. Exactly. And that takes place without having to you know, write a mission statement. That takes place without having to put a bunch of flowery language you know, embroidered into something you hang you know, in the office. Um, and so I think the people you hire and how you think about them, not just as culture fits, but culture adds. We've also written up uh, publicly some information about thinking about diversity early on so that you don't accrue cultural debt in addition to sort of you know, technical debt. So all of those things just go into being intentional about what you're building. They don't go into, you know, sort of overbuilding. They don't talk about uh, slowing down, finding product market fit uh, that you can work on being a great company. You know, obviously the oxygen at the seed stage is coding and selling to some extent and finding out who your customers are and bringing your product to them. But the best founders, I think, are intentional about the company they're building because they're building a company that they want to work at for a very long time. Sounds, Sounds like, like homebrew in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, we're in, in my mind, we're in year three of a 20-year roadmap, and uh, I surprised uh, Sacha and some of our founders. Uh, first summer 2013, we were having a happy hour in our office. Uh, I left discreetly for an hour, came back with the logo tattooed on my right shoulder. Uh, somebody asked if that was real or not. I said, you know, fake tattoos don't usually bleed. Um, so uh, I, haven't, I haven't used that yet to win a deal. But yeah, if you sort of, you know, ask whether I'm committed or not, uh, you know, I'm committed. I think that's a sign. Hunter Walk, thanks so much for joining us. We'll leave it there. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. Intercom.